You're listening to the Comic Book Informer Podcast with Vince and Raj, a podcast for everyone from comic nerds to comic noobs. You know who you are. Now here's your host, Raj. Hello and welcome to the Comic Book Informer Podcast. This is episode 110, and that's why I'm hosting the guy with the, the freaking... Stuff. All right, anyways. <laughs> <laughs> February 12th for everybody watching. There's going to be some fantastic comic books coming out tomorrow. But until then, how about we talk about what we have been wanting to talk about for quite a while. Actually, before we get into that, though, the comics for the discussion this week, we're going to talk ever so briefly <laughs> about yet more DC cancellations. So the ones that are being axed right now, we've got Deathstroke, Hawkman, Team 7, Firestorm, Ravagers, and Sword and Sorcery. Sword of Sorcery, sorry. And did they say when they're getting axed? Um, I believe May is either the last issues or that's when the first new issues are coming out. Right. Yeah, being canceled in April. So yeah. April's the last issue. So some of these are the quote-unquote original new 52s that have been around for a little while now not that they I completely forgot firestorm was being published yeah really and then some of them were <laughs> which the, is sad because i go through the new releases every week yeah really uh and then some of them are very recent like team seven and sword of sorcery um, and ravagers yeah all three started in what october not that long ago because we talked about them, it wasn't that long ago, and did not really have that many good things to say about them. But, I mean, really at this point here, <laughs> why are they still calling it the new 52? It's Because no, they're still sticking with the 52, which is no, what's killing them. I know, but what I'm saying is, it's it's not new anymore. Okay, it's, it's you've been going at this for a little while, and it hasn't been working. So another really, year, and they all might be new again. Yeah, let's let's drop the new fifty two and just be DC again. Um, and then, like you were saying on Twitter too, that will afford you <laughs> the convenience of just dropping titles and not having to replace them with something else that's likely to be crap. Concentrate on some titles that are strong titles that you can really work with, make them even better. Toss in some mini series in there for fun that you can do something good with. And then, you know, as you grow your fan base, then come out with something else. Don't just toss a bunch of characters together and hope for the best because it just ain't going to work. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I can't do anything but laugh. I, I, was, I, I don't, I, this comes off so frequently that I, I feel like I'm railing on DC, but it's only because I want better from them. <laughs> like I'm not bashing them just because they're acting stupid. I'm bashing them because they're acting stupid when they don't need to. <laughs> it, 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 this entire experiment at this point has failed so colossally. I mean, you have a small handful of successful comics and I'd have to say probably close to 40 that they could just flat out eliminate. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm not going to, I'm and, not going to disagree. There's there's and, a lot they could get rid of. And since they're sticking to this, you know, hard number of 52, that means that now they have to pull six more comics out of their butt to to fill in now. And, and you know what if, they're going to do? They're going to dig if through if the archives. Six, yeah, if those six comics weren't good enough to make it into wave one, two, three, or four, <laughs> I mean, they're really digging deep at this point. And, and that's not to mention just a few weeks ago, they announced two other comics were being canceled. They announced back in January that I, Vampire, and DC Universe Presents are gone. So that's in the period of two months, eight slots they have to fill now. I mean, they've already announced what the two other fill-ins are going to be, but not exactly what they're about. But at least they have titles and creative teams. But, oh, God. And with them, you know, going through all this upheaval, what are the what are the odds that it's going to be even good? Like, the characters and concepts notwithstanding, I mean, now they have to throw together new creative teams and get this stuff out there in just a few months. So I don't know. 
The thing that, that strikes me is that like one of two things is going to happen, just judging by the track record that we've seen with them. And most likely is they're going to dig deep into the archives and come up with something, some obscure comic that didn't do well back in the day. So why not just give it another chance? Or alternatively, it'll be something completely brand new. And then you're going to hope that, you know, people will be on board with this from the get go. And see, I go back to this idea that they need to scrap this new 52 that's it. You need to get rid of this idea. You, you've had your, your few years now to try to make it work and it isn't. So you know what? Scrap it. Just let's try something else. And what I'm thinking is, again, if they can, like you said too, scrap a crap load of them, stick with the ones that are doing reasonably well right now. But on top of that, what you want to do then is come out with the mini series. And those are the ones that you use to test the waters. So get a good creative team working together excuse me, and then allow them to come up with some, some different ideas of things that they'd like to, you know, pitch different ideas and take more chances. And like, I, I think of say how well Talon is doing now because of the time that was in Batman, that we got to know the character and we got to know the, the concepts behind the court of owls and all that. So that it, it had a strong foundation then for when it came out. And so I'm thinking if they can do something similar to that, where they put out some miniseries at that point yeah let your writers go wild try some different stuff and see what the fans like then build on that but not with this new 52 crap anymore it's it's just not working i honestly what we're probably going to see is further spinoffs of you know superman and batman yeah. because they're running out of those d-list characters I mean, come on they've are they're already publishing a vibe comic do you have any idea who vibe is Actually, no, I don't. Neither do I. <laughs> and if neither one of us has even heard of this dude before, uh, you know they're digging deep. So we're probably going to get, you know, like a new Robin comic, you know, with one of the Robins starring in it or, you know, another super family person thing. Like, it's, I don't know. Like, yeah, but, yeah, they're but they're you, running out. All rapidly. we have to do is look at freaking Marvel is doing the same thing with look at how many Avengers titles we have. Look at how many X titles we have. So it's not There's like they're difference. being all that original either. Don't you? Yeah, they're selling, but they're not always <laughs> good. You know that as well as I do. Yeah. All right. So let's actually move on to the topic of discussion here. It's it's something that we've wanted to talk about for a bloody long time. I know that when I, I think first it was issue seventy five oh, was please. when we first planned it. Oh yeah, but I'd been I'd been thinking about this from the moment I pitched CBI to you before it was CBI that I would love to do the, an, an episode on this, and that is of course my all time favorite series, and that is Lone Wolf and Cub. Now, this series first came out in the uh, in 1970, and the the writer for this is uh, Kazuo Koiki, I, and if I'm mispronouncing, don't mind me. And then the artist is uh, Goseki Kojima. Go, close enough. Anyways, I'm going to make you pronounce every single, single name. One, yeah, dang, and I happen. Um, <laughs> so, anyways, this ran for a, a while it was manga series in in Japan. And then what they did is they brought it to North America and it was published by First Comics. Now they published it in 1987. It was a monthly comic book and it was in the North American comic book size, not the smaller format that you got in Japan. And what what really caught a lot of people's interest and, and I initially was that they, they got covers done by Frank Miller who at the time was huge, huge. And see, this is when I remember it because this was towards the tail end of when I was still collecting comic books. I was very close to done. And I remember when they first came out from First Comics, I'd actually bought some of them. And, um, and so, but they never published all of them either because they just weren't doing quite well enough. First comics shut down in uh, 91. So what happened was that in September of 2000, Dark Horse Comics started publishing them. And what they did is they published them in, there was 28 of them, and they were the small trade paperback volumes. Um, I actually have all of them. I, pub I, I bought all of them. Um, 
And uh, this was even after I'd stopped reading comic books. But when I heard that this was happening, I bought them anyway. So they're still in my library <laughs> and I have them all. And they're like prize collection for me. I, and, uh, and they're absolutely beautiful. And they do still have the Frank Miller covers on them as well that were there originally. So anyways, for, for those who aren't aware of the impact that this had, the impact in Japanese culture was massive. We're talking six films, four plays, there was a TV series, and then we've seen it branch out from there where we've seen references to this in many other creative arts, whatever, whatever, whether it be TV, movies, other comic books, cartoons, you name it. Hell, there's even a, a freaking lone wolf and cub in Samurai Jack for crying out loud, which was awesome. I missed episode. Oh, dude, it was awesome. <laughs> um, so the impact was huge. And then again, once it hit in North America, you had a whole bunch of people who were able to appreciate the, the, the depth of the series. Now, again, there's 28 volumes. You're looking at over 8,700 pages. The scope of this is massive, especially when you take into consideration that though there are a lot of, uh, a lot of issues wherein they, they, they hold in and of themselves. You can read them and not really have a, a huge idea of the overarching plot. There is still that overarching plot that goes throughout the entire 28 volumes. And it's an important one. This ain't just any kind of crap here. This is serious business. And so, and you have a lot of really dark material, especially when you look at what, what is going on here. It's very dark. There's, there's um, a very, a, a powerful overarching story that you really don't get in a lot of comic books still now you really don't it's it's kind of unprecedented but that is because of the work that these two did together and the speed with which they did it as well which you really don't see much even now kind of thing so what we have here again just as a very baseline and then we'll we'll talk about some of our favorite stuff as well is you have Two characters, the main characters, one being, of course, uh, Lone Wolf, and then the other one is Cub. So you got Ogami Ito, and then you have his son, Digoro. Now, what happens is that Ogami is the Shogun's um, executioner. So here you're, you're presented right from the get-go with something very important in terms of, of how the story progresses. Because as you're reading it, there is so much historical accuracy throughout and that's something that the uh, the writer Kazuo is very well known for so you learn a lot about Edo period Japan and a lot of the the rules a lot of the mindset the culture the weapons everything and so you find out just how important the shogun's executioner is and basically he is represents for all intents and purposes the shogun whenever someone has to commit seppuku for whatever seppuku whatever uh, for whatever reason if they've disgraced their clan or have been found guilty of whatever kind of thing then when they go to do so in front of everybody else to make it easier for them the Shogun's executioner is the only one who can essentially decapitate this person um, to ease the process. Nobody else can do so because if they do, it takes honor away from the clan or from the daimo or whatever. So at that moment, the executioner is the only one that can do so and he represents the Shogun. So in terms of power and um, I don't want to say prestige because that's the wrong word. Stature. Sta it, good. Yeah. Exactly. He He's it. Now, what happens, though, is you have another family, the uh, Yagyu clan, and they are not happy with this. And they wanted one of their own to get this position, not Ogami. And so they actually set him up. And that is why he goes on this path and becomes an assassin instead of himself committing seppuku. He actually decides he's going to take down 
all of them, the entire freaking Japan. Literally. Everybody, <laughs> until he can get to the leader of this group, Retsudo. So from the, the very beginning, his wife is killed. It is thought that his, uh, his child would be killed as well, but he actually survives as, as a newborn infant. He survives. And so as he is choosing which path to go on, he raises the, the, the child for a little bit and decides what he's going to do. Um, he actually presents the boy, Degora, with either a very bright ball or with a sword that he plants into the ground. And if the child goes to the ball, then he knows he will have to kill the child, his own son, uh, because the child is not is choosing to be with his mother. Or if he chooses a sword, he's choosing to live in um, Mifudo, they call it, um, which is the path of the demons, essentially, kind of thing. And, and from there be with his father as his father goes on this murderous rampage, <laughs> this awesome murderous rampage. <laughs> and the boy chooses the sword. And this basically sets up uh, a phenomenal, phenomenal story arc that, like I said, spans 28 volumes. And if you can read them, I'm not saying that's 28 small volumes. Oh, yeah. These are bigger than your average trade paperback. 8,700, over 8,700 pages. If you can read them, not again, not back to back, but you know, in a reasonable span, you will be able to appreciate the everything that went into this in terms of just how far he was planning the entire story. And when you get to the end of this story, it is by far one of the most awe-inspiring final battles that span several of the, the, the issues as well. We're talking, you know, well over 100 pages of fighting, <laughs> all kinds of stuff, and just the political backstabbing, mystery, everything, everything that goes on towards the end that when you get to the end, you do not feel let down. At no point do I feel you you feel let down. But uh, again, I'm a little biased just because of of my love of this this series. So, just to talk about the the actual scope and impact of Lone Wolf and Cup in 1987, without uh, making you feel too bad, let's just say I wasn't reading very many black and white <laughs> Japanese revenge comics. Okay. <laughs> So I completely missed the series its first time around. And, you know, as I got older, you know, my uh, older teenage years, I actually had a, a very big interest in, you know, martial arts films, you know, Akira Kurosawa, you know, Bruce Lee, you know, all that stuff. And uh, in the local video shop one day, I saw Shogun Assassin, which is basically a compilation of the first two Lone Wolf and Cub movies, uh, Sword of Vengeance and uh, Baby Cart to the River Styx. And that was really my introduction to these characters. And I loved it. I mean, of course, I loved just about anything that had swords and beheadings and stuff at the time. But that is what, you know, really grabbed me. And I, you know, knew like, okay, this was some cool stuff. And then, you know, as time goes on, I'm seeing it pop up and, you know, all these other references throughout the years. I was like, man, this, this must have been pretty important in Japan. And then just as I was starting to kind of get back into comics in the early 2000s, like I spent a lot of time at the bookstore because I didn't have a job that paid well enough to buy very many comic books. So I would just go to the bookstore <laughs> and read them off the shelf. <laughs> Not the comic book store because that's mean, the actual Barnes and Nobles. And then I saw the Lone Wolf and Cub comics from Dark Horse. And I was like, this, it, this is the thing. Like this is the thing I, I'd been seeing for, you know, years at all these different places. I think I ended up, I only ended up buying like the first eight volumes. I had to have a whole lot of money <laughs> and that wasn't all at once. It was over time. And then when we went to talk about this, I'm like, well, you know, I'm not backtracking on the 20 volumes I missed. I just kind of picked up the last couple to see how it ended. Like I could fill in the middle stuff over, over time after that. So the, the, that shows the scope that Lone Wolf and Cub has had over the years where not even knowing it was a comic book, I was so aware of what it meant in the, the larger, you know, popular culture. Well, and it, it, the reason for that, too, is because of, of, I mean, I don't know that necessarily any series could have, you know, been out at the right time 
for and been done properly that it would have had that same impact kind of thing. It's hard to tell. Um, not in Japanese culture, so I don't know kind of thing. But when you look at it analytically and you look at the strength of the writing, but then also the fact that like, that, that historical accuracy makes a huge huge difference and it lends this air of credibility to the entire story so as you're reading it you get this this uh, you know you not because he meant to do it but you got this phenomenal history lesson where you feel like you are there N- and not just about like important things like that that everybody should know about the shogun and different things like that no about every little thing Every the little culture, lua, the, the religion, and, I mean, all that. Everything. And, and to the point where uh, things that you would think this really didn't matter all that much to the story in, in, like, in any given issue. But because it is there and because there's a little note explaining this is what this means. And never in such a way that you feel that you're being, you know, it's a, it's a freaking history lesson no it's just allowing you to delve a little deeper in and feel like you are there in that time and again for everything to the point where they explain how maids had to audition like the 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 test that maids were put the lowest on the rung of maids would have to be put through in order to get a job i mean simple Things like that. But then it's done in such a way that then, like for that issue, which I can't remember, of course, what that the name of that issue was. But you have this this little girl now who is trying to get this job as the lowest rung maid. And then as you're following then her story and how she's trying to help Degoro uh, in one of those issues, then you really care for her. And it means that much more. And that's where, again, Kazuo does such a phenomenal job with historically accurate writing mixed in with such strong characters. He's a phenomenal character writer as well as huge story plot writers. Like he he puts, and, and there's no shame in saying it, but he puts so many of the modern writers that we have for the big two to shame just with the strength of his writing. You think Hickman can plan stuff out. God, and I, I didn't <laughs> want to scrub. Yeah, I didn't want to <laughs> say it because I got so much respect for what Hickman does. And I'm sure given the chance, he would do really well, of course, too. But I mean, when you're looking at, and that's exactly what went through my mind, you look at when, what Hickman did, which is phenomenal, sure. But compare it. Compare it to what we have here. And it's subjective, of course, but in my opinion, there's no comparison. It's it's unbelievable what Kazuo was able to do here. So, go ahead. No, I was just going to agree. So, yeah. Yeah. So, when you're looking at... And, and, and see, again, going back to the, um, the, the historical accuracy, we, we learn a lot more about the politics of the time, which is important because... This is a story of, it's it's all politics. I mean, it is a man who is trying to get back at the people who have wronged him. And it's because of the politics of the time. And, um, And so when you're looking at all of the historical accuracy there, it really teaches you something about what it was like to live in that moment. But then one of the other things that people have really latched onto was the historical accuracy of the weapons used. Because... At the root of it also is he becomes an assassin. So he there's a ton, ton of fighting here, the most the bloodiest freaking fighting you can find anywhere. Um, but there is a ton that you learn about about samurai, about Ronin, about their weapons, and how in that time as well, there were a lot of people who a lot of various martial arts that that experimented with different types of weapons because of a variety of things. I mean, you have people who became masters with weapons whose origins were because people were being oppressed and weren't mm-hmm. allowed to carry weapons lest they revolt against you know the the daimyo or or anybody else. So they'd be easy, easier to to 
squash than somebody who had if they were carrying swords around. So you have like, you know, the ball and chain on the end of a gardening utensil, essentially kind of thing. And then you have a lot of hidden knives, but then they talk also about the various swords of the time. And I know, I, I know you feel the same, but to me, those are, it's, it's, it's so fantastic hearing the history about various samurai weapons and different mm-hmm. swords of that era, because the work that went into it is so different than what we've seen in, you know, other swords. Like the when you're talking about the crafting that went into various Japanese swords of that time, the, there was a reason why they didn't teach other people how to do this it took forever to make these swords they were insanely strong and things like that like when you look at ogami's trademark sword it's the uh, dotanuki sword which is more of a battle sword so it is very very strong and it can actually break through lesser swords and so when you're reading that initially in the first few volumes kind of things you're thinking okay like you're being taught about it but you don't realize the importance but then you do at the end, you know, 28 mm-hmm. freaking volumes later, you realize why they made such a big deal about his sword and how it fails him at the end because of the political backstabbing and treachery. And so that made a huge difference in like he, he could have won had that not happened. So and so, sorry to, to no 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 go ahead. <laughs> but yeah, not like not only that a, a samurai's weapon like it, especially you know compared to modern thoughts it's not a tool it's it's not a not even a weapon it, it's an extension of the samurai they spend their entire life honing and perfecting their craft their weapon choice is such an important part of their character yep. and like like you said the, the the craftsmanship that goes into it I mean they're there's so many levels of that. Like the the top, you know, sword makers, even to this day in Japan, they only get their the the ore they use to make the steel from a very specific place. And it's only given to so many sword makers every year. So even even the going not just the the samurai who wields it but the person who crafts the weapon is is, is such a an important part of it. Like it everything from from the ground it's dug out of until the ultimate end is is such a fascinating story and adds so much more character overall like it 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 really showing that much detail takes it even to another level beyond what it was already at well that's the thing and and not just that but See, he had the opportunity here wherein he could have just written the story wherein he teaches you a lot about the swords and things like that. And you appreciate the work that went into it. And you appreciate how important it is to the, the various people of that time. But he takes it to the, this whole other level as well because you find out as you're reading because of um, various encounters that Ogami goes through how because uh, he's on this the road to hell mefumado um the it actually changes how he fights and the importance of the weapon to him and that's something that's brought up several times so wherein like you were just saying the the weapon becomes an extension of the samurai kind of thing once they go into this state it no longer is at that point it's a tool just like any other tool. So a lot of the encounters he wins because he actually throws Mm -hmm. his sword on first pass, something that is completely unheard of, but because to him, it's just a tool, it's acceptable. So again, here's another lesson again about how the, 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 whether it's a samurai Ronin Ronin or anybody wielded their tools and what it meant to the weapons, I should say, at that time and what it meant kind of thing. Like there's, there's so much, which then again, continues to impact every, every battle that you see going forward. And then especially again, that final massive battle, that a field of corpses kind of thing. You now have this entire history of, of having watched him for, for all of these previous volumes and appreciating just how powerful he is and his mindset and what he's willing to do to to win and to finally take Retsudo down. 
for those keeping score at home and wondering just how much we care about this, we spent the better part of the last 10 minutes talking about a sword. Yeah. <laughs> FYI. <laughs> <laughs> That's not all. Then he's got the freaking polearm things in his baby cart for crying out loud. He hides three of these weapons inside of the baby cart that he basically uses to carry Degoro around. And, uh, and so there's these three polearm type weapons that they, they have their own names and histories and everything like that too. And you can become a master of those and you can slice freaking horses down with them, which we see them do a few times. Um, but again, that all adds to this, this intrigue that this character has. I mean, and, and this is something why I did love that moment in Samurai Jack because not everybody would have gotten it but when you're an adult and you see the man with the baby cart with the baby inside and it's like oh my god just the, the clacking of the wheels going forward and it's like <laughs> oh it, it's just a thing of beauty is what it is and uh, and so what you have here now again is a you have to look at the story one would think that the majority of it would be about just Ogami, of course, and his drive to kill the, um, the Ratsudo. But you find out as you're reading that just how important that cub part is as well. And it is. There Those are, are easily my favorite parts oh, yeah. of the story. There, there are issues that are just about Degoro because he ain't no normal kid, obviously, because of everything he goes through. And he has, as many of the samurais come to, to realize this, he's, he's, you know, he's seen too much already. And he has these dead eyes that he walks the same path as his father. And so the relationship you have between those two is so unbelievably powerful. Um, what were some of your favorite issues that were just of that, do you recall? Well, I mean, when you look at it, even from the beginning and you see, you know, when he's pushing like the baby cart down the hill and all these things, like especially at the beginning and on purpose, you get the feeling that Ito treats Daigoro, you know, almost as, as a tool, like as a distraction, like, oh my God, he's putting this kid in danger just to win the fight. And then the way it's revealed over the course of the story, like, no, he's not putting Daigoro into danger. Daigoro is putting himself into danger to help his father. And it, uh, one of the ones, um, Ito was at a shrine. I forget if he was healing or if he was preparing for an upcoming battle. I can't remember. And I think it was the one you were talking about with the with the maid girl who befriends Daigoro right. and Daigoro actually comes to her defense, like holding the sword up against, you know, the the, the guards and all those things. Just all those moments. Like, that's what stands out at every every memory short of the final battle, because come on, yeah, really. <laughs> is is Daigoro. Like, and see, if I'm not as, mistaken, as amazing that, as Ito was, he he was <laughs> nothing beats that sight of you know the little kid with the tiny top knot and you know his little kimono trying to lift the sword or you know defending himself with a stick and staring down all these samurai guards to the point where they back off like that. That's what I remember most about the series. That's the issue, if I'm not mistaken. Where yes, it is because he runs back to his father who's meditating and he's trying to hand him his sword and the father Ogami essentially says you got yourself in trouble get yourself out <laughs> <laughs> and that's the relationship the two have the the one that strikes me is the one where again he um, he's left without his father for a while and which is they say is normal it happens and as you're reading these of course it does so the child is left for days on end. Helen, one, there was an avalanche that got him stuck in a, in a cave. But in this one here, he goes out looking for his his father. And he's got that that little, kind of made himself a little jacket kind of thing with some, some leaves and whatnot. And he's walking out in the cold. And that's when another samurai spots him and sees that he's walking in and, and notices that look of, you know, in his eyes and everything like that. And he wants to test whether or not he is, he's right. And so that's when they're, they are setting fire to the grass and he happens to be there and he knows the kid's going to get burned alive, but he says, let's test him. He shouldn't panic if he is in fact this like this. And, and sure enough, instead of panicking, Degoro happens to be close to some mud and all that builds a puts mud all over the grass around him in a circle so that he won't burn and then covers himself in the mud and his his uh, his his outfit and whatnot and he survives it but 
And then when you get to the, he's brought to the samurai by the people in the field and whatnot. And they, he's ready to freaking draw a sword on him. And little Degoro has got his stick and he poses. And you see that in several too, because he's been watching his father fight. So he is using the same poses from the school of martial arts that Ogami Ito studied. So, and they, they mention that, that often. So again, this, this child had, a huge impact on the story going forward. And especially if you read it over the course of those 28 volumes, then you were reading for a long time. Like when I picked them up again, it was one a month for 28 month months. And I, I never missed a month. I had a deal with the comic book owner that even though I wasn't reading anymore, that there, please save me one of every single one. And I devoured them every month. And so during those 28 months, you're watching this child grow up and the impact that that had on him, on his father. And so, like you said, you really get to care about that kid so that when you get to the final battle and you see the look in his eyes when, um, when Ogami drops and you see him pick up the broken pole arm and rush towards Retsudo, this is again why I'm saying that I cannot imagine anybody who would be disappointed in the climax of, of this entire epic story because it was, it was so unbelievably powerful. And, and not to give anything away, but the final fight between Ogami and uh, Retsudo, I mean, it takes up the majority of that final issue is the fight between these two guys. And I, we've seen it so many times in, you know, other TV shows and movies and whatnot, you know, the two warriors standing and, you know, facing off with each other. And you have so many panels and pages like that where it's just these two dudes staring at each other. And yet it never becomes boring. Oh, hell no. It, it's it's so gripping because you know at any moment something could happen or you know one of them is in a defensive position like it's so many pages of seriously these two guys just staring at each other and every single one manages to be astounding yeah and by then you have pretty much everybody <laughs> everybody is aware that this is going on Everybody's got their own reasons for who they're supporting. The even the Shogun makes his way over there to watch, despite everybody telling him not to get involved. And and also what the impact will be with all of the other clans that will see him get involved and whether that will mean that he'll lose face because he's going to protect um, Retsudo. And then because of all the political things that that have been happening with him, whether or not that's right. And then, so you have all of these other clans showing up at the same time and you are essentially told that there's going to be a, they're not going to put up with this. And this is the moment where they will take the Shogun down. And yet when they get there and they can appreciate what is going on between these two men fighting, everybody puts their swords down to the point where you have the samurai there putting their spears down to the ground, the greatest sense of, you know, honor to show their respect for what is going on between these two men that are fighting. And, and again, progressing at such a a pace that even though there are so many panels that are just the, the, the quote unquote stare downs and the holding the swords between two hands kind of things, the tension is palatable. I mean, you can't flip these pages fast enough to get through because it's insanely powerful. Absolutely. So I don't know that we can say much more about it right now. We've been going on quite long. Um, (laughs) I could seriously, this could be, I I could talk about this for 10 episodes and, and barely scratch the surface of my thoughts on it because we gave you kind of an overarching story ideas and whatnot. I mean, there were so many powerful issues here that, that I still remembered from when I'd read them when I was still a teenager kind of thing. That's the impact that they had on me at the time. And still today, they are just as powerful. So like I said, I could go on talking about this till, till issue episode 150 for us. We won't of course, but, but I could. And that's why I I don't think that I can stress enough. If you have not read this series, go out and buy it. 
go out and buy it all. <laughs> you will not Forget about your be rent. disappointed. There's just, there's no, I cannot imagine anybody who would read this and be disappointed in it. Before we move on, a couple little tidbits. Um, first of all, uh, Sean Howe, who wrote that book, um, The Untold Story of Marvel Comics, he has this incredible, like just cache of all this obscure Marvel stuff. And he actually had a letter uh, from 1972, I think it was, uh, when whenever Stan Lee was editor-in-chief of Marvel Comics, where he contacted the Japanese publisher, like, hey, I'm hearing a lot of great things about this Lone Wolf and Cub series. Can we publish it in America? And the publisher wrote back, he's like, we would love that to happen. It's not ready for America yet. You know, they, they hadn't worked out the translations and all that stuff. He's like, we would love to have it published in America, but until we know it's ready to publish in America, we're going to hold off on it. So I, and of course, you know, by the time it finally did get published in America, it was by, you know, some company that couldn't stay in business. Like, just imagine if Marvel had been able to get a hold of this decade before it originally came out in, in America. And imagine the impact it could have had then. Because uh, we see, you know, obviously Frank Miller is a huge inspiration uh, from Lone Wolf and Cub. But we would have had an entire generation of American creators inspired by this. Yeah. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And the, the the translation was very important to this because yes. it had to be done right where and it just it wasn't just a let's just change everything to English and and make it seem as if these guys were in Brooklyn. Um, you get still a lot of the Japanese like it's it's a it's not translated some of the words because they even tell you this would be too hard to translate for yeah, an no English-speaking audience. So they, they explain it, and there are glossaries. And then you can also, from the terminology, and some of it is even explained on the fly, so you can know what is going on always for sure. But I think, I, I know that the translation could have been botched terribly, but it wasn't. It works. It makes you think as well. And then have you heard of Shin, Lone Wolf and Cub? No. Currently being published in Japan, written by Kazuo Kuike. Uh, unfortunately, there's a new artist because Kozeki Kojima has uh, passed away in yeah. recent years. It is telling the story of a grown Daigoro and his adventures as a ronin. I did not know that. It's currently being published in Japan. Unfortunately, it's uh, going through some issues because various publication companies that they're working with keep going out of business. Oh, but uh, Dark Horse Comics announced years ago they already have the rights to it. And as soon as it's ready to be published in America, it's coming out. That'd be amazing. That'd be amazing, yeah. <laughs> so, oh, man. Yeah, no kidding. Just to whet your appetite slightly. Yeah. Okay, so moving from there, now again, like we said, there are many, many different series that have been impacted by Lone Wolf and Cub. And... One of the ones that we're going to talk about now, ever so briefly, is the recent 47 Ronin. Now, we've gotten the first two issues of that, and I'm going to let you tackle that. Okay, so 47 Ronin, written by Mike Richardson with uh, art by Stan Sakai. And I'm going to go off on a hopefully brief tangent here about Stan Sakai, because he is an absolute legend in the comic industry. I mean, going back to uh, 1987 was when Usagi Yojimbo was uh, first published, and... Over the past 25 years, Stan Sakai has single-handedly, with the exception of Colors, put out almost 200 issues of Usagi Yojimbo. I think it's up to like 187 or something by now. And just as much as Lone Wolf and Cub is influential, Usagi Yojimbo is as well. Like, you see, actually, uh, a version of Lone Wolf and Cub showed up in Usagi Yojimbo. At one point, he faced off against him. Of course, Usagi Yojimbo is a Japanese samurai. <laughs> it, it's the uh, tale of Miyamoto Usagi, who is uh, very, very heavily influenced by, of course, uh, the famous swordsman Miyamoto Musashi. And his, it's Yojimbo's uh, own, his uh, his warrior's pilgrimage to, you know, before, before anybody can become a full samurai, they have to go on a warrior's pilgrimage and prove themselves. And th that's definitely one to check out. Like, oh my goodness. If you're talking about influential comics... Usagi Ojimbo, like I said, it, if you're being published over 25 years, it's been nominated for dozens of Eisners over that time. Usagi Ojimbo is worth checking out. So for Stan Sakai to take a break from Usagi Ojimbo for the first time in 25 years to come draw 47 Ronin tells you just how important this story is. Yeah, 
and and I can't add anything to that, and we, there's no sense wasting too much time on it. But just to say that the art in this makes me go back and read the comic again, but it's on my second read through that I'm actually now spending all of that time looking at everything because the first one you just want to read the story and appreciate the art read but it's so good that i have to go back and go through it all again just to go through every panel again because the art is so unbelievable Mm -hmm. so the story of the 47 ronin is actually 100 percent historically factual there there is no dramatization involved here uh it's so important to japanese culture it actually has its own genre of storytelling called the chushingura and it has had hundreds of plays movies tv series books it it is basically a genre of japanese writing in and of itself. And the story of the 47 Ronin is really what has inspired all of the famous samurai stories ever since, including Lone Wolf and Cub, Usagi Yojimbo, Seven Samurai, you name it. This is where it all starts. And of course, just like every other samurai story, it takes place in the Edo period of Japan, where a young daimyo, Asano Takumi Naganori, is summoned to the shogun's court to entertain some emissaries that are coming. Now, unfortunately, Asano is a very young daimyo. He is uh, way out in the country and is not trained in the ways of court. So, he is brought into the Shogun's palace early to train under a, a teacher, to teach him. A teacher teaches him, yes, mm-hmm. uh, how he should behave in the court. And you know, he knows about honor. He knows about Bushido, but he doesn't know the, you know the proper way to act. And we see that right off the beginning where the instructor, Kira Kozunusuke Yoshinaka, is – yeah, say that three times fast – is a very corrupt official. Uh, it's customary for those receiving uh, the lessons to reciprocate with a small gift of their own. Now, Kira is so set in his uh, station that he expects much larger gifts, whereas Asano is super by the code uh, of his honor, and he refuses to give a larger gift to Kira because Kira himself is performing a service for the Shogun. So he should not be expecting that much in return for basically performing his duty. So this is where things go completely awry for poor Asano because now Kira has gone out of his way to ruin Asano's instruction uh, to the point where he verbally provokes Asano to anger and Asano attacks Kira, which in the Shogun's palace, even drawing your sword, much less attacking someone, is punishable by death. Well, he kicked him in the face. (laughs) (laughs) But he didn't draw his sword. But he kicked him in the face. I would draw my sword and I'd chop that foot off. At least a big toe. <laughs> but you see, it, it, and that's that's one of the things about the story. Like Asano himself isn't completely innocent. If As- Asano had stopped it there, technically Asano is a local lord. He's a daimyo. In the grand scheme of things, he technically outranks Kira. And if he had if he had stopped it there and taken it through a, a more proper means it would not have gotten to obviously where we see it go. But uh, Asano, his temper, as we see later in the story, they knew his temper was going to get him in trouble in the capital because he did not know. He knew how he was supposed to act, but he didn't know how people actually did act. And and it's it's those cultural things that really make this story so interesting. Well, he was a bumpkin at heart. <laughs> <laughs> So unfortunately, uh, because he you know, violated the Shogun's laws, the Shogun had no choice but to sentence him to death. And we see a lot of you know, the, the more corrupt aspects here where Kira himself was the member of a powerful family. And that powerful family did not want you know, the dishonor to come to their names. So they basically railroaded Asano through the court process. And Asano was unforgiving because he knew he acted – you know, due to his own personal code of honor. And he, he's like, that, that's what happened. Um, I'm going to live with my decisions or in his case, not live because the Shogun sentences him to death, but allows him to commit seppuku and take his own life and retain his honor. <laughs> I just love that. You, you will be allowed to yeah, kill really. yourself. <laughs> I love that when we're watching, when we're reading this and especially because like, again, I, I reread it again because we knew we were going to be talking about it today. Um, and it's important to note too that an ed- one of the editorial consultants on this is Kazuo Koike. So, but when he is committing seppuku, of course, there's the shogun's mm-hmm. executioner, same as would have been Ogami Ito. 
very nice. <laughs> and so, uh, unfortunately, when the daimyo has to uh, commit suicide, he forfeits all of his holdings, his family is now homeless, and more importantly to this particular story, his retainers, his samurai, are now leaderless. Now, according to the law, they are supposed to lay down their weapons because a samurai without a, a lord is no samurai at all, and only samurai are allowed to wield weapons. But many, as we've seen in so many stories, many of them retain their weapons and become ronin, and that is exactly what happens in this story. Because now going forward, we have uh, Oishi, Asano's lead retainer, and all of his uh, smaller retainers becoming the 47 ronin and are now going to seek out revenge against Kira. This is one of those ones where I, I believe I talked about it too during one of our prior episodes and what we've been reading, um, even with uh, the second issue here, where there's so much political intrigue mm -hmm. going on and backstabbing and everything, but at no time, at no moment are you bored with the story. Is the, the pace is phenomenal, and because we are those kind of history buffs for this time period as well and whatnot. It's so bloody interesting. I, I absolutely, I cannot wait for the third issue. Yeah. And, and as they say at the beginning of each issue here, to know this story is to know Japan. This, this single story is so ingrained into their national identity. Just, just for a historical and cultural standpoint alone, even if you don't like comic books, even if you don't like samurai stories, this is worth reading for those aspects. I've always said, whenever I talk to people about comic books and whatnot, it, again, a, a good story is a good story. It doesn't matter which what medium it's, it was written in. And this is one of those amazing stories that should be read. And it just so happens that you get this awesome artwork <laughs> with it as well. But it is a phenomenal story that's historically accurate that will give you a better perspective on on Japanese culture, which unless you live there is so unbelievably different than ours. And there's a reason for it. And so when you're reading things like this, you, you get much more of an appreciation of, of those cultural differences. Absolutely fantastic. Yeah. Okay. Well, like I said, we, uh, that's the first two that came out. The third one is due out in, in March. And this is definitely one of those series where it's, it's, I, I, it won't necessarily appeal to everybody. Not everybody is as, you know, enamored with that culture kind of thing. But if you are even just a little, it is so worth reading. And you don't need flying phoenixes to thrill you. <laughs> you can have this historical, political backstabbing and th political thriller kind of story that is... You really care about the characters quickly in this as well, to the point where, again, you know where it's going, but you really want to read it to be able to to find out more about the people that were so impacted by what happened. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's move on to what we've been reading. I'll let you tackle yours. Actually, no, no, because I'm hosting. I'm yeah, going first. Come on. Jesus. Man up. Take hold. You wanted to know what I thought about Batman and Robin Annual. You asked me last yes. week. I read it. I read it actually that night. It was freaking awesome. It was absolutely fantastic. I loved it. So for those who have not read it, because you really didn't give much of a... Well, I, I didn't want to. No, no. I, I wanted you to go in pretty much sight unseen. So what happens is basically um, Robin sets up Batman during some off time <laughs> uh, on this little kind of adventure around the world rediscovering different things about his past and his parents' past that he did not know of. So he sends them to various places around the world and leaving clues and whatnot. All the while, he pretends like he's going to the next places so that, um, so that Bruce will head over there. But all the while, he's actually remained in Gotham to take up arms where, so that, you know, he can take care of the city while Bruce is gone. Because that's one of the things that Bruce worries about when he's on the plane heading out. Uh, I, first stop is where? It's somewhere in Europe. I can't remember. London, I London, think. Yeah. So, uh, yes, it is. So, uh, so he's afraid that, you know, Gotham without Batman for a while is not a good thing. Meanwhile, Robin is actually taking care of Gotham in his little mini 
Batman. I love that costume. I love that costume. That was freaking awesome. And see, this is the kind of stuff that I like because Robin's not being this freaking little punk brat. He's, well, he's got little moments, but he steps up and it was, you get these fantastic scenes with him acting as Batman that were great fun. And then you get these powerful, poignant moments with Bruce getting little bits of history of his folks. Like, like again, the, the painting that his mother drew, that he left his handprint on. Like, things like that that really move a man as an adult. And so I really, really liked it a lot. Yeah, it was so great. And usually I don't care about annuals because, you know, they, they're they pretty much superfluous to the overall storylines because of the publishing schedule. They usually have a different writer and a different artist, although uh, this one at least managed to maintain uh, – I think it's Tomasi is the writer here who's been writing Batman and Robin. And it I, I don't expect anything out of an annual issue ever. But so many people were talking good things about this. And you know me, if uh, I'll have to investigate. So I checked it out and I was not disappointed. Oh, yeah. It was fantastic. Uh, did you read uh, Superior Spider-Man number three? Yes. Yes. <laughs> you sure? <laughs> yes. All right. <laughs> Took a minute, but yes. Um, yeah, Slot is running with this and he's doing a damn good job. I, I'm still... I'm still looking forward to when we return to some form of continuity that we're used to kind of thing. That said, with each issue, he's handling this really well. I mean, this is this was fantastic. This is this is Doc Ock Spider-Man putting J. Jonah in his place like that, <laughs> having him eaten <laughs> out of his palm. Uh, that was great, but just using him, and that's something that Carly is seeing as well. And then the moments where he is going up against the um, the Vulture, and so he knows a lot of things about the Vulture that Peter wouldn't know, and so that makes that encounter that much that much different than the norm, but. The the moment that he, Doc Ock, is meant to, he, he's forced to kind of hit what winds up being a kid in a costume. And you get that little history there, that little blurb where you see how he was an abused kid. And then what that does to him. And all of a sudden he's fighting for, for good, essentially, again, a little too violently. <laughs> but uh, I really, this was a good, really good issue. I loved the whole thing with the spider signal. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> kind of kind of giving the finger to Batman on that one, but it was great. But it was a big I, old finger. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when the spoilers for, you know, ASM 700 and superior number one were hitting the web and everybody was freaking out. Like, how could you do this? How could you do this? Dan Slott always said one thing. He's like, don't judge the what I'm doing on one or two facts. Let me tell the story. And then see what you think after that because we were hesitant ourselves when this first started up but we're letting him tell his story and I love the way he's telling it I I'm still I still maintain what I've said in the past about different things and how I felt about it and different how different sure. things were handled and I it is still a cliche that I'm not fond of that said once you're willing to let go of that and say okay well let's just see what you can do with it then um, what he's doing with it is phenomenal it is absolutely fantastic the stories are so much fun to read and then when you're getting through to your this issue here to the end and you're seeing how you know carly may be getting in trouble here because she's letting on that she is figuring this out it's again it's a it's freaking can't wait now to read the next issue because <laughs> Again, everything is being handled in such a way that, with the exception of just a, a, a couple of things here and there, um, really digging where the each issue is going. Not just this one, too, but The Avenging. The Avenging has been going really strong as well, and I've been enjoying that one just as much. I'm looking forward to the next one of that. Did I read Avenging 16? You should have. That was the one with the X-Men. Yes, then I did. Yeah. Um, <laughs> actually, you know what? I said I was going to do two. I'm doing one more. Um, did you read um, All New X-Men number seven? Of course. Okay. What did you think of it? I love it. <laughs> I mean, uh, everything with young Cyclops and Wolverine from both issue six and issue seven has been brilliant. Like, it's just uh, I, nothing 
more I can say there, but I loved the way Mystique was manipulating Psylocke. Yeah. Bendis wrote that so phenomenally, like to the point where I wasn't even sure what the truth was anymore. <laughs> I thought it was fantastic as well. The everything that's going on here, all the stuff with Mystique, all the stuff with the the fake Wolverine, the real Wolverine, um, the little Scott is getting on my nerves too. <laughs> I know he's got a lot on his mind, but stop with the drama mama stuff. Uh, Did you rob a bank? Yeah. (laughs) Um, Fantastic issue. And then, again, can't just keep it on that. The stuff with with freaking um, Shadowcat and Iceman, where she's trying to get him to do push-ups and stuff. Go ahead and try to hit me. (laughs) Uh, But all that stuff. And, of course, the spoiler ending, too, which is making me... Oh my God, I can't wait till the next one now. So just as strong. Well, maybe not quite as strong as some of the last couple of one, but man, just fantastic issue. Okay, go and ahead. Mar- Marquez killed it on the art too. Oh yeah. As much as we were praising Imonen for uh, his work on the first few issues, uh, now that Marquez is the hopefully dedicated backup artist, I'm not disappointed. Yeah, no, it wasn't as strong as Imonen's, but damn near. Mm-hmm. Okay, go ahead. What's yours? All right, the only one I want to talk about this week is uh, Iron Man number six uh, came out last week. And the story, I loved the story because it's now Tony out in space and experiencing everything that has to offer and loving life. I, fantastic technology, new cultures, beautiful women. And, and, did you read it, by the way? I'm trying to think. I know I read five. Is is that the one with the chick that won't sleep with him because with of the, the beard? Yes. yes. Okay, then yes, I did. <laughs> I mean, the story is great. I, I loved it. Unfortunately, Greg Land. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I was going to say, doesn't that alien look a lot like Pepper Potts? more good comics than I can count. <laughs> and it, it's, like we said, it's not that the art is bad. It's that with his limited number of facial <laughs> expressions that never match the tone of the scene – and the more Greg Land comics you read, the more you start seeing the same faces. The purple woman had the same face as the blonde in issue one, who had the same face as Emma Frost and Uncanny X-Men. Like, it, uh, all he did was paint her purple. <laughs> that is literally all he did. I mean, it was so... It, it completely takes me out of the comic, which I hate because I loved the story. I, I completely agree. I was reading that and I was saying, hey, did somebody spray paint Pepper Potts? Because look at <laughs> looks just like Pepper. I, I'm done. You're done? Yeah. Okay. I, I completely agree. I think, though, you're talking about issue number five, not six. I, I think there was some sort of weirdness with that because it was, I've seen it listed as issue number five, but the cover says issue six. So Really? I, I think somebody has a typo somewhere. Okay. I don't know. Um, yeah, no, cause I did read it. That's you're talking about the God killer one of three, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think technically I keep calling it issue six though, because it, yeah, said, six. Su- some place, some websites, some publications of it is, as issue six, some have it as issue five. Okay. Well, yeah, I did read it and I thought the exact same thing. Okay. So let's talk about what is out to this week on the Marvel front. We've got age of apocalypse number 12, Avengers assemble number 12, which again, Avengers assemble stuff, read it. Cable and X force number four, fantastic four, number four powers bureau. Number one, anything yes. powers dude all over it. Love that stuff. Uh, secret Avengers. Number one, ultimate comic X-Men number 22, uh, Uncanny X-Men number one. There it is, finally starting. Wolverine's Peeps number 25. X-Men number 41. And Extreme X-Men number 10. Tons. I thought Adjectiveless X-Men ended already. What's that? I thought Adjectiveless X-Men ended already. Apparently not. <laughs> Whoops. Okay. I'll check that again, though, make sure. Uh, on the DC side, we got some 17s from Batgirl, Batman, with the end of the story arc. They're dying to know What's what happened. on the plate? Yeah, because... Um, not all of the 17s for the other Batman actually are referencing what the hell happened. It's as if they completely stopped with the story arc. Well, it's over. Detect- so. Yeah, I think it's Detective Comics number well, 17 as well. De- no I, mention. 
because they can't. <laughs> they can't tell you what happens in Batman number 17 before it comes out. Well, no, but I mean, they could at least still be And we be know DC of... isn't going to shuffle their publishing schedule around. No, but they should still do something as part of the story arc. Speaking of which, though, did you read the uh, Detective Comics 17? Although, was I think technically Detective 17 takes place before... Because he's dealing with uh, the Joker guys, right? Yeah, with the new guy, the Mary Which Maker. Which I, I believe timeline takes place at the very beginning of the Joker showing uh, back up possibly, again. Possibly, possibly. Okay. Doesn't the Mary Maker costume look just like the Doctor costume that you can get in multiplayer for uh, Assassin's Creed? Yes, I believe that was on it's purpose. It's just like, yeah, exactly the same. Okay. Uh, anyways, so let's move on. We've got on the DC side, like I said, Batgirl, Batman, Batman and Robin number 17, and then Suicide Squad 17, which is point blank given up on following and just doing their own stuff, but whatever, and Superboy. I actually haven't been reading Superboy as of late. I'm wondering if it got any better. Unlikely. Okay. And then Katana number one. I have no clue oh, what it is. crap. What is that? I don't know, but we're going to have to read it. Okay. <laughs> we're going to have to, or you're going to have to. <laughs> Okay. If I have to. Like hell, buddy. <laughs> you uh, have to. On the others, we have finally, if you've been reading Mouse Guard, the Black Axe series, Six of Six, is finally coming out from Arkea. That's actually a series that I really enjoyed, and so did my son. And then we've got, did you look into Ghostbusters? Number one? I, I heard about it, but I haven't really investigated it. I haven't either. And I was like, I don't know. The potential for fail is there, but because it's a huge cultural thing, well, we'll see. IDW has done very well with their licensed properties. Yeah, see, that's the other thing. Uh, Manhattan Projects number nine. Woohoo! Walking Dead number seven, which I damn near didn't put on the list, but you almost have to because it's Walking Dead. And then uh, both from our image, of course. And then Archer and Armstrong, which you've been digging, number seven from Valiant. So you're still reading it? Yes, I'm still enjoying it. Okay, I need to get caught up on them. Because I, I do want to read them. And that is it for today. Thanks to everybody for uh, for listening. We will, of course, be back next week with our, our lesser of the two hosts. I don't know what you want to talk about next week. Have you decided? That just means you're fatter. I'm, Dude! <laughs> that is so uncool. Okay, Listen, fine. how else can I turn that insult into, into a win for me? You can't. You did not win that. <laughs> fine. That's it. We're done. 